Welcome friends to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured and genre fiction focused podcast. It's 2023 and this is the first show of a new year, but we're harking back to our birthday show of a couple of weeks ago and finishing off our journey into a cold December in 1970 something to see what happens with the demon Elmec on its release from the Hedra bound tank in Graham Masterton's The Devils of D-Day. If you're new to Breakfast in the Ruins, you may wonder what this has to do with Moorcock, and the answer is very little, other than this is one of many hundreds of books handed to me in the 80s by my uncles, but mostly by Pops, my long and dearly departed paternal granddad, the fella that introduced me to the works of Britain's greatest living fantasist. So on this show we cover Moorcock, Moorcock adjacent things such as music, art, comics and role-playing games, and from time to time, other books and authors that came to me via Pops alongside the adventures of Oswald Bastable, Elric and others. As it happens, the birthday show theme for 2022 was Ghost Stories for Christmas, and our patrons voted for Graham Masterson's The Devils of D-Day. On that show, due to a combination of birthday vittles and many libations, we only made it through about two-thirds of the book. So we're back to finish it off. Last time out, I took a look at the Penguin Encyclopedia of Horror and the Supernatural to see what it had on Graham Masterton, but it was slim pickings, so I had to do a bit of internet research, i.e. I looked at Wikipedia. However, very close to hand, I had Don Damas's Encyclopedia of Fantasy and Horror Fiction, but I neglected to give it a look, so I'll remedy that now. And Don said, The British writer Graham Masterton's first horror novel was The Manitou, 1975, in which an Indian sorcerer named Misquamicus returns to life, physically manifested himself within the body of a woman, and eventually seizing control of an entire hospital, before being defeated by a new spirit with which he is unfamiliar. The novel became a mediocre movie, but was sufficiently popular to launch the author's long career as a writer of usually gruesome and almost always relentlessly suspenseful novels of the supernatural, many of which are quite original in concept. He also revived The Manitou for two interesting but inferior sequels, Revenge of the Manitou in 1979 and Burial in 1992. Masterton's initial follow-up was a series of fast-paced supernatural adventures, such as The Djinn, 1977, in which a genie is let loose on Cape Cod and proves to be malevolent, The Devils of D-Day, 1978, about a haunted World War II tank, and Charnel House, 1978, in which another Indian spirit returns, this time inhabiting an old house. His early novels rely primarily on fast-paced action and very gruesome death scenes, although even in his early work Masterton's ability to efficiently create realistic and sympathetic characters is quite evident. The first of Masterton's novels to acquire greater depth was The Hell Candidate, in 1980, originally published under the pseudonym Thomas Luke. An unprepossessing man rapidly becomes the odds-on favourite to become the next President of the United States, an outcome resulting from his deal with the devil. Masterson also used the Luke pen name for the heirloom in 1982, in which the action centres around an apparently ordinary chair that is actually a conduit for evil powers. He returned to his own name for Pariah, 1983, the story of a sunken ship that is the focus for an ancient evil, and none of his subsequent horror fictions appeared under a pseudonym. Masterson began using unusual sources of horror with some regularity thereafter, starting with Tengu, 1983, in which Japanese demons are incarnated in the bodies of humans in an effort to undermine the international status of the United States, a blend of supernatural suspense and espionage. Picture of Evil, 1985, also published as Family Portrait, concerns the supposedly real family upon which Oscar Wilde later based the character of Dorian Gray. The Greys subsist by draining the life force from others, but the most memorable portion of the novel is a chase scene that actually moves through a series of famous paintings. And now this 
entry in the encyclopedia. It goes on quite extensively, outlining the content of many of his novels, but it finishes thus. Starting in the late 1980s, Masterson began writing short horror tales with some regularity, several of which are quite good. Although there have been several collections of his short fiction in Britain, only one has appeared in the United States, Charnel House and Other Stories, in 2002. Masterton has been a reliable writer of very fine horror novels for almost 30 years, and has polished his skills considerably during the course of his career. At his best, he mixes highly original images with unusual themes, and uses fully developed characters to draw the reader into his terrifying imagined worlds. Although he's never achieved the status of Stephen King, or Dean Koontz, his work is always warmly welcomed, and he seems assured of a prominent place in the history of the field. Thanks for that, Don. I really should move your encyclopedia up a shelf too. Don doesn't mention his career writing sex manuals, <laughs> or editing grot mags, but Don did a really, really fantastic summary of Graham's career up to that point. Anyway, fill a sherry glass and tuck your feet up under your blanket, or... If your New Year resolution includes dry January, make yourself a mug or something, and join us as we find out just what happened next in The Devils of D-Day, Part 2. We're back in Darien Toms. Hi, it's nice to be back. Technically, it's still Christmas. When do the 12 days of Christmas run from? No idea. Oh, well, it's uh, let's just say it's technically still Christmas, okay. which means that later on we can have Christmas cake and cheese. And we've got a tree up. Our tree is still up. Technically, it's still Christmas, and I think we'll run with that. But we're back here because on your birthday special show, we only got through three chapters of The Devil's a D-Day, yeah, which well, turned out to be just over three-fifths of it, probably. Yeah, well, this is it, five chapters, and it was about each like you say and we were having fun in Morecambe at the time we were we had many many vittles and many many libations and it was good fun so it was all fine but the devils of d-day what happens in chapters one to three well summering it up as succinctly as i can dan goes over to france and whilst talking with some other french people Oh, no, he's not French. Was whilst talking with some French dudes, he learns about the tank mm-hmm. that had been left there in World War Two, and that it was a, a sealed tank and it was evil and nobody went near it, which kind of started him an interest for him and wanting to find out a bit more about it. Yeah, so our hero is Dan Bishop. Dan McCook. Dan McCook. Why am I thinking Bishop? I've no idea. So Dan McCook. Is a cartographer who's doing World War Two maps, battlefield maps for a book for as as a commission, and these two old dudes with baguettes tell him about uh, that he might be interested in a tank, and he finds a rusted old Sherman tank, practically stuck in a hedgerow, which all the locals think is haunted, and then very quickly, fortunately, he bumps into Madeline, the other protagonist, who the gets the rampage in Hotspur. He does, young French woman, and instantly gets to meet her family yep. and get her sort of entwined in it all, really. In yeah, the so family drama. is dad, and who's the old dame? Eloise. Eloise, who looked after her mother. Never really found out if there's a relationship, family, familiar relationship with Eloise, but she, we know that she looked after Madeline's mother when Madeline's mother died. And we found out that Madeline's mother died when she tried to perform some kind of ritual on the tank and she fell ill and died within the year. 
They also introduce him to Father Anton, the local 90-something-year-old priest who gives them more information, and basically what happens is every time someone gives them a, di- a decent exposition dump, something really bad happens to them. Yeah. And it happens to Anton, and it happens to he, Antoinette, the lady, his housekeeper. Yeah. They Very get brutally killed. Yeah. Uh, because Dan and Madeline, like a pair of absolute dickheads, decide that the best way to deal with a haunted tank that might have a demon in it is to let the demon out with no plan of how to deal with it. But before we blame them as a duo, it came. the idea came from Dan. Although Madeline came round to the idea, as did Father Anton, mm. if Dan hadn't suggested it, nobody would have opened no. that tank. Dan is bad news across the board. What an idiot. Yeah. What an absolute tool. However, it doesn't really matter so much because there's something coming up in Chapter 5 which suggests that Madeline might have had an ulterior motive. But we'll get there when we get there. Maybe, maybe not. Anyway, so they open up the tank, they release Elmick, one of the 13 demons, one of the devils of Rouen, and he wants to be reunited with his 12 brethren to be able to bring back their... Their chief. Their chief. Yeah, their, their gaffer. Which begins with a, and I've forgotten what it was already. Um, but we'll get to it as we're going through it. Yeah. Yeah. So they want to get, they want to release that. They want to. He wants to get released. They want to release their gaffer. Elmex also pretty cheesed off because the other twelve devils in the other twelve tanks aren't stuck in hedgerows somewhere in Normandy, so they may have got their reward. And Elmex a bit miffed about that. Yeah, I remembered. It's Adrem, Adremelec. Adremelec. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it was Adremelec. Adremelec. Something, Something like that. Like that doesn't yeah. matter. We always struggle with pronunciation on this <laughs> podcast. So it, it doesn't matter in the slightest. So Elmex out. They decide that in order to deal with it, Father Anton will stick Elmex in the, in the in his cellar while they figure some shit out to deal with it. Terrible idea. Because Father Anton gets taken out. He essentially gets scooped out like a houseboat. Yes. Yeah. Um, scooped out like El- a log Elmec being turned into, into a houseboat. Yeah, yeah. Elmet goes into his, his husk, his yeah. skin. Yeah. Dan nearly trips over all his gizzards. Oh, yeah. Has a good conversation with him. Elmet then demonstrates his power of the demon of sharp objects and knives by shredding Antoinette, the housekeeper. Poor Antoinette. She did nothing. No. We knew ye so little, Antoinette, mm. but you've come a cropper at the hands of the demon of knives and sharp objects. And then Elmet says, right. So I'm in charge now. You're going to take me to England. We're going to find Father Taylor, who's the guy who locked me in this tank all those years ago anyway, and the guy who actually built the crucifix to the turret and imprisoned me here after the tank broke down. So I want to go to Blighty and find him. Yeah, because Father Anton kept in touch with Reverend yeah. Taylor and he had an address. Oh, no, he didn't have an address. He just says he knows roughly where he is because, if you recall, when they get to England... They have to go to the library and get Jeff's massive book of priest's addresses. Oh, that's where he gets it from, just yeah. that he lived in, in yeah. England. So he knows he's back in England. So they catch a ferry. It's fairly uneventful, even though they've got a, de- uh, a devil in the boot. Mm. Get to England. They look it up uh, his um, address, the priest's address. Turns out he's only seven miles from Dover, which is extraordinarily handy. Isn't that so lucky? They have a brief stopover in a B&B opposite a prison. I was expecting some kind of massive to-do with the prison. Doesn't really happen. But they have a pretty rubbish experience in the B&B because Elmex saying, let me out. 
We're zooming through chapter four now. Oh, I got ahead of ourselves. All yeah. oh, right. So they haven't gone to the B and B in the prison yet. Yeah. We'll get to that bit. But they find Father Taylor, and turns out Father Taylor is basically a massive exposition machine. Is a, a what? Exposition machine. He just tells them lots of things. Oh yeah. Even though he says, "I can't really tell you under the official secrets act." Yeah. But then he realises because they know a lot, because they've got Elmick in the boot. Yeah. Oh, well, you kind of know most of it anyway. Yeah. So they get to uh, Taylor's house. And it says, uh, I switched off the engine. It was only then that we heard the soft, subtle noises from the trunk at the back. We sat tense and silent in our seats, staring at each other in horror. Then we heard Elmick's dreadful whispering voice again. We are near, aren't we? I said nothing. Elmick insisted. We are near, aren't we? Madeline nodded at me, encouraging me to answer, and I said in a taut, strained voice, Yes. Yes, we're near. You have done well. You have found the Reverend Taylor quickly. Yeah, because it was eight miles from Dover. <laughs> I will reward you, you know. I will give you the power to snap a man's neck, if that's what you want, or to thrust knives and razors into a girl's sex. You'd enjoy that, wouldn't you? Bit of a bit of a perv, Elmick, isn't he? He really is. I closed my eyes in desperation, but Madeline squeezed my hand and whispered, Agree, Dan. All you have to do is agree. I said loudly, Yes, Elmick, I'd enjoy that. <laughs> Elmick laughed. <laughs> then it said, Are you going to find the Reverend Taylor now? I can feel him. He's close by. Yes, we're going to find him. And you won't do anything foolish, will you? I'm sure that the Reverend Taylor's house contains as many knives as Father Anton's. Just remember Antoinette. Didn't she scream? Didn't those knives and skewers hurt her? I swallowed painfully. Yes, I said. They did. They hurt her very much. The devil laughed with a soft creaking noise that made me shudder. I said, Come on, Madeline. Let's go and find the Reverend Taylor. And I opened the door of the car. As I stepped out, Elmick whispered from out of his locked trunk. Remember, the sun has set. Your ring of hair no longer protects you, so tread wisely. So, what we've got to mention is he's got a ring of hair, which Eloise gave him, because Eloise has all these magic items just stuck in a drawer in the kitchen, which was the result of a, a child sacrificed to Morlock in Rouen in the Middle Ages. And she gave him something else as well, didn't she? Yes, as he was leaving, she went, right, he says it's going to run out in 24 hours. Have you yeah. got out else for me? She went... Well, not really, but I have got these ashes that yeah. are supposed to be from the cloak. Yes, the of... ashes of Jeebus's cloak. Yes. Yeah, and also what they have is Father Anton gave them a book of demons and stuff. So, they give them, so they've got this little book of demons and stuff, which will come in handy in Chapter 5. Oh, yeah, yeah. Father Anton gave them a little book not of demons Reverend and Taylor. stuff. Was it Father Anton? Or, or does Reverend Taylor give them it? Oh, I don't know. They get so they've got one magic item. They'll maybe get another magic item anyway. Some reverend or other gives them a funky book. So they go and check out Saint Catherine's Church and Vicarage, and they knock on the door, and oh, the vicar's in, which is handy. So not only does he live eight miles from Dover, but he's in as well, and they go into the vicarage. The reverend's a little bit suspicious at first, but Madeline's uh, first he thinks the Mormons, so I don't need the Mormons. <laughs> I've got nothing to say to the Mormons. They're a terrible pest, you know. And all this ridiculous nonsense about Moroni and Baroni. Madeline said, we've come about the tank. The vicar swivelled his jowly head and his stiff clerical collar and blinked at her. The tank? 
How very odd. Why is it odd? I asked him. I wondered if he, like Eloise, had felt some kind of premonition or psychic wave. Well, said the Reverend Woodfall Taylor, he only came round to empty it on Tuesday. I stared at him uncomprehendingly and he stared back at me. The septic tank? Isn't that what you mean? If I hadn't felt so sick and serious about Elmec, I think I would have laughed. But all I could say was, not that tank, sir. The tank you once said prayers over in Normandy, during the war. His mouth slowly opened as if some strong, invisible hand was pulling his jaw down. He said, perplexed. Normandy? The tank in Normandy? I nodded. It's been opened, Mr Taylor. The devil has got out. It has been opened. Yeah. Never does he say, I opened it. Yeah. It's been opened, Mr Taylor. The devil's got out. So he's, uh, he's a bit freaked out now, is the Reverend Taylor. I do, yeah, I do like the next line, actually, that he wrote. That he stared at me in absolute slow-motion horror. Mm. I really like that. So it dawns on him. He takes them in. Fortunately, his wife is out tonight, organising a beetle drive for the Women's Institute. Phil, you're a woman. What is a beetle drive? Absolutely no idea. Me neither. Um, we probably should have looked but, that up, shouldn't but we? But thanks for asking. <laughs> I think you're a fucking clue <laughs> what beetle drive is. <laughs> I know what a whist drive is, even though I don't understand whist. That's cards, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, no idea what that is. He offers him a whiskey, and then he starts the exposition. Yeah, by starting by saying, I'm, I'm sworn under the Official Secrets Act, but then they explain all that's gone on. That's right. So he thinks, well, they know quite a lot of it anyway. It won't hurt to fill them in all the last bits that they don't know. Yeah. McCook says, its name is Elmac, the Devil of Sharp Knives and Cuts. We don't bring all 13 devils together again. It's promised us the worst death that anyone could think about. The vicar sat back in his chair. His eyes went from Madeline to me and back again. Then he said, you know about it, don't you? You know about it already. Only some of it. Just a few fragments of information we managed to get together in France. And some good guesswork by Father Anton. Father Anton, said the Reverend Taylor, brightening. I had no idea that he was still alive. I'm amazed. How is he? He was so kind to me during the war, you know. A real gentleman of the cloth. Father Anton died last night, Mr Taylor. <laughs> he was killed when Elmec got loose. He's, he's, you know what, McCook is something of a dick. He's not owning any of this. And the other thing, talking about things I should have looked up beforehand, when Reverend Taylor says that I'm afraid the official secrets act is there and I'm not going to tell you, and he says, I'm afraid the official secret act is going to have to go where the monkey puts his nut. <laughs> Reverend Taylor goes, I never quite understood what that means. And yeah. I was thinking, no, I don't. No. But they don't explain well, well, monkeys put nuts in the mouth, don't they, and eat them? Or does he mean the mus monkey's testicles? But where does, where does the monkey put his testicles? It's it's a strange expression. No, no. I, do they hide the nuts? I, I don't know. I ain't got a clue. No. <laughs> I ain't got a clue. It's a strange one. But anyway, they, they let him know that um, the probably the 13 devils that terrorised ruin in 1045. They were exercised by Cornelius Prelati, sewn into sacks. But that was all that he knew. So Reverend Taylor says, uh, well, he was a clever man, Father Anton. He was absolutely right. They were the 13 devils of Rouen. Les tres diables de Rouen. But they want to know how he got into the tanks. So the Reverend Taylor, after the uh, Official Secrets Act, says, well, I suppose there's no harm, since you already know so much already. The Official Secrets Act counts for fuck all, as we find out <laughs> over these next couple of chapters, because this is the first of three people who are just like, yeah, whatever, whatever Official Secrets Act. So, he tells them all about William de Warren, one of William the Conqueror's most trusted officers, 
and there brought these devils across. They were bound into suits of armour, and they helped them defeat King Harold yeah. and his forces. Yeah. And then they were locked up in uh, an immense priory. For years and years and years, they laid buried and unknown. We also know that we found out that William de Warren actually gave them his wife. Yeah. Because you needed a blood sacrifice, mm. he offered his wife to be able to... Well, there's the devils and then there's a Dremelech. Yeah. And the Dremelech, it turns out, needs a woman. And yes. And, yes, he offered his wife. Yeah. So he, they got uh, Gundrada, William de Warren's wife, yeah. and then powerful French exorcists at the Priory quelled the evil spirits, sewed them up again in sacks. And they were buried there until railway engineers dug them up. Dug them up by accident. Mm, bloody railway engineers. They had no idea what they were doing, etc. Well, at least they didn't accidentally split any of the sacks. They, yeah. they got taken up, didn't they? Yeah. After they'd laid buried for 900 years and after they'd been dug up, fortunately, seven Roman Catholic priests who knew the stuff sealed them away in a church vault in some heavy-duty church action. At this point, Dan's all, oh, no. Anton on his own never stood a chance. <laughs> After all this, all these hardcore exorcists, seven exorcists, bishops, all this business, and at this point he's like, oh no, Father Anton never stood a chance. Dan McCook is a twat. Well, he was so intent, he had to open this tank. Hmm. He hadn't lived in that little village where they'd suffered all those years. No. He was just visiting to He was just mass. being a busybody. Yeah. But anyway, so Father Taylor, Reverend Taylor, wrote a treatise on them for his parish newsletter in 1938. And somehow that parish newsletter came to the attention of the US government. And during the war in 1943, they come to see him and they quiz him before coming back in 1944 to convince him that they should be pressed into action. That they would do, sort out all the details. He just needed to go along. Yeah. I told them all I knew, which wasn't very much. I didn't think much about it for a while, but in January 1944, I received a letter from Bishop Angmering saying that Allied forces had a patriotic interest in the Devils of Rouen and that I was to give them every cooperation possible. The Reverend Taylor was obviously disturbed by his memories. He got up from his chair and began to walk up and down the worn carpet of his sitting room, his hands clasped firmly behind his back. They came one day with Roman Catholic priests and took the 13 sacks away. I don't know where they were taking them, but I begged them to be careful. I said the devils were not to be meddled with, but they said they were quite aware of that, and that was why they wanted them. He sat down again and rubbed his eyes with his knuckles. The next I knew, I was ordered to go to Southampton and report to an American colonel called Sparks. He was a very brusque man, I remember. He said that my devils were to be used by American forces for a secret mission, a special division. They had been brought back to life by the conjuration of the Kabbalah, and they had been promised great rewards if they fought on the side of the Allies against the Hun. I never found out what those great rewards were, but I suspect now that they may have been, well, human sacrifices. I asked one of the American officers, but all he ever did was smile and tell me what they were doing is for Western liberty and freedom. The Americans. Hey, we have American listeners. Sorry, cousins across the water. So you went across France with this division? I asked the Reverend Taylor. I did, although I was kept in the rear most of the time. Since it was impracticable to take seven Roman Catholic priests along with us, it was my duty to make sure the devils stayed in their tanks, and I did this with silver crosses that had been blessed by seven priests, and with incantations from the holy exorcism. I was only required once, as you know, when one of the tanks broke a track, 
and they found it impossible to move. Madeline slowly shook her head. Didn't it ever occur to you, Mr. Taylor, that the devil you left in that tank would bring misery to all who lived near it? The Reverend Taylor frowned. I sealed it away, and they told me the tank would last forever. But out of all the thirteen devils, this was the only devil who hadn't been rewarded, right? I asked him. I suppose so. So it was bound to be troublesome and dissatisfied. Well, yes. I sat back and wearily ran my fingers through my hair. What you did, Mr. Taylor, left a thirty-year plague on that community. Milk went sour, eggs went rotten, and now the devil's got out and two people have died. Three, if you count this young lady's mother. That's Dan's third reference to the devil getting out, taking no responsibility whatsoever. I don't know. He's, a, he's, he's, he's something of a card, is Dan McCook. But at this point, Elmec's getting impatient, and Dan starts to get cuts on his hands. So Elmec is getting impatient and starting to cut him up. Dan lets slip that the demons in the cowboy <laughs> <laughs> and Taylor, uh, Reverend Taylor isn't impressed with this but I suppose now that he's stuck in this situation he agrees to find them to let them or sorry he agrees to help locate the other 12 demons and this this in some ways could be perhaps quite a difficult task mm. but as it turns out it takes about five minutes yeah well he gets a Christmas card every year from Colonel Sparks but of course he does yeah so yeah, yeah I've, 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 got, I've got his last Christmas card kicking around somewhere it's got his phone number on it so they make a phone call to the States, and Colonel Sparks turns out he's just as accommodating <laughs> as, as Father Taylor and spills the bean in about, spills the beans, sorry, in about 30 seconds. And once again, Dan's like, oh, well, it got out. And Colonel Sparks is, oh, no, it got out. Well, in that case, I'll let you know where it is. It's in a London address in a house owned by the War Office. So what we found out from Colonel Sparks is that the devil's got their reward in the form of some POWs and an unlucky female French collaborator mm. who we've never heard of before. Mm. Nazi collaborator, wasn't she? Well, uh, uh, no, she was French, but she collaborated. Oh, yes, sorry. Yeah. Oh, she, she was accused of being a collaborator. I wonder if she's relevant in some way. Mm. It just seems a little bit odd. It's like, yeah, some POWs and... An unlucky female French collaborator. <laughs> hmm. And also they call the devils ANPs. Yes. So it's to give them a military title, isn't it? Yeah, what it? does it stand for? It stands for Assisting Non-Military Personnel. Yeah. So these ANPs got their reward in the form of human sacrifices and then got locked up in the basement of a house in London. Not a bunker or a church or a vault. Just a house near... Oh, let's check my notes. Uh, South Kensington, which, um, you know, seems perhaps a little bit loose, security-wise, maybe a little bit risky, I don't know. I mean, at this point, I perhaps get the sense that Masterton's a bit bored of this now and he wants to rattle things off to a, to a rapid conclusion because there's not a whole lot of book left. And given that they've crossed the English Channel, they've found the vicar straight away, he's put them onto Colonel Sparks. Colonel Sparks has told them everything they need to know. I don't know... It, if, if this was an American author around this time, this would have been 500 pages long. But this is something very, very specific to British genre novels of the time. New English Library novels, Sphere was publishing these novels, which is a really good idea in a horror novel. Write it in six weeks, get it out there, move on to the next one. 180 pages, mm. done. Yeah, because this, this is... Uh... Uh, a really great idea. And the setup's really, really good. The setup is there's a lot of information goes into it, 
but the last couple of chapters do feel very rushed. Yeah, it is very, very rushed, isn't it? So now they're saying, so now they've spoken to Colonel Sparks and it's like, have you got anything that might help us on our travels when we go get the rest of them? And he's like, yeah, I don't think so. Mm. But then he finds, gives them the book on the angels. Yeah. Yeah, because Elmec's getting restless. Taylor offers them some tongue sandwiches. Not a euphemism, actual tongue sandwiches in bread. But they decline. So McCook says, I mean, McCook, for all intents and purposes, asks Taylor if he's got any magic items that might help him. Because they've got their ash. And, yeah, he's got a handy book of devil identification. And it mentions, this book of devil identification, the seven tests. (gasps) The seven tests of a devil's identity, which you said in our first episode. He mentions it, and then they never mention it again. Yeah, well, it turns out they did. Just in the next, in chapter four, <laughs> we never got that far. So the back, and also we find out that Adramelek is is he might be a doozy of a Sephiroth, but he's got an opposite number in service to God called Hod. Mm. But Hod himself can be a handful if summoned, but could nevertheless be helpful. Hmm. So it's good to know this. Yeah. So we've got some magic items. Got a book of devil identification. Got the seven tests. We've got. Um, the idea that there is potentially a summoning that could bring Adramelech's enemy, his diametric opposite. So, and there's a nice little bit of detail here as well when Taylor tells them that all priests have secret training in devilry and demonology. They just keep it to themselves and pretend it's all allegory for the public's sake. Yeah. Mm. And I really love the idea, I've, I've loved throughout this, and, and um, when Peter's on Twitter pointed out that this sounds like a great setup for a scenario. And it really is. But there's loads and loads of different ways you could do this. And there is a role-playing game out there, um, which is actually about um, agents of the church fighting demons and devils in Rouen in the Middle Ages. So one part of this is already covered by a game. But I really like the idea of sleepy home counties parish vicars with secret training in demonology and devilry, but who basically spend 99.999% of the time eating apple pie with old Mrs. Miggins or whoever from down the road and trying to avoid, you know, getting perved on by 50-year-old widowers. That's, or widows. Widows, widowers, whatever. Equal opportunities. Um, so that would be a really good setup for a game. Anyway, I really like that. That was kind of cool. So at this point, I'm thinking they're going to get out and we're going to... Reverend Taylor's going to be fine. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. And then he gets shredded to bits by an exploding window. Yeah, because he, he pisses off Helmet by telling him to be gone. Yeah. Elmec. Yeah. Yeah. Elmec demonstrates his power again, and Reverend Taylor follows poor Father Anton into uh, into the grave. This He smashes all of the windows and all the glass shred him. Mm. Unfortunately, it's at that point the housekeeper decides to come in. Yeah. And sees her poor Reverend. Yep. Shredded. So they end up uh, down the police station don't yeah. they, for a couple of hours, but the police can't really produce any evidence that they did it, and it did look like an exploding window. Did you read it as well that Elmick had some influence? Yeah, yeah. El- Elmick influences the police sergeant and kind of to let um, them go. Fogs his mind, yes. doesn't he? Mm, mm. They have a couple of hours at the cop shop, but get released, and that's of course this is when they go and stay in a B and B opposite Lewis Jail, and. It's, I think this just turns out to be a bit of local flavour, the fact that this B&B is opposite the jail, because there's nothing really comes of that. Uh, maybe Graham Masterson stayed in a B&B opposite Lewis Jail at some point and thought he'd write it into the book. I did like the fact that 
the woman let him let them in, and obviously it was really late, early hours of the morning. Yeah. And she was going to let them off the full payment yeah. because they'd already missed so many hours of sleep. Yeah. It's like, oh, where are these B and Bs? I need to find them. Yeah. The B and B, funnily enough, actually gives uh, cause for one of the better passages in one of the spooky passages in the uh, book, yeah. I think. And and when he's just going properly spooky, it's actually quite good. I'm not really into Elmec talking about lady parts and, and no. being, you know, unpleasant, but um, this passage is pretty good. It's just in the morning. It is in the morning when they're awake. It's um, during the night. So they've got undressed, they've got in bed, they've fallen asleep pretty quickly. And it says, um, I was awakened by a scuffling noise. For a second, I wasn't sure if I was dreaming or not, but then I heard it again, and I lifted my head from the pillow and looked around. I held my breath and tried to suppress the pump, pump, pump of my heart. The room was very dark, suffocatingly dark, and even though I strained my eyes, I couldn't see if there was anything there. I lifted myself up on one elbow, and the bedsprings creaked and complained like a tired orchestra. There was silence. I whispered, though I didn't want to. Elmec. No reply. Madeline stared in her sleep and turned over. I whispered again. Elmec? There was another scuffle, then a rustling sound. There seemed to come from down behind the foot of the bed. I sat up, my skin electric with fear, and I tried to see what was hiding there in the darkness. Again, there was silence. I was sure I heard a faint scratching and rustling on the worn linoleum, and I was sure that a darker shadow shifted and moved in the gloom. I kept absolutely still. I could feel that Madeline was awake now. She reached across the bed and squeezed my hand, too frightened to speak. But I bent my head towards her and said softly, It's in here somewhere. She swallowed and nodded. In the hush of the night we waited for the devil to stare again, our hands tightly clenched together, our breath held back into shallow gasps. Suddenly Madeline said, Dan, the window, Dan. I turned towards the window. I flinched in shock. There was someone silhouetted against the curtains, a tall figure of clotted shadows, unmoving and quiet. I took one look, and then my hand went scrambling in search of my bedside lamp. But I tangled my fingers in the flex by mistake, and the lamp tipped over and crashed onto the floor. In the terrible silence that followed, a woman's voice said, Are you rested? It was a strange, throaty voice, too deep for a woman, really, but too vibrantly female for a man. The dim figure stared and moved silently across the room. I could just make out a pale face, a smudge of grey in the grainy blackness. Who are you? I demanded. Who are you? The figure didn't reply for a while. It seemed to be grating its teeth together with an edgy, squeaking sound. Then it said, We take many forms, you know. Many substances. Aren't you afraid? I said, Are you Elmec? Elmec, or Asmarod, or Kafis. We have more names than nights have passed since the crucifixion. Don't think that your book can identify us, because it won't. What do you know about that? The thing gave a hoarse, blousy laugh. I know that you are wasting your time in religious folly. Angels, you must be demented. You have struck yourself a bargain with me, my friend, and with my master, Adramelech, the Grand Chancellor of Hell, the Peacock and the Serpent. Don't talk to me of angels. Madeline said, What are you going to do with us? You're not going to keep your bargain, are you? There was a sound of crackling as if the beast were tugging its knuckles or biting into bones. Then it said, in a much deeper, more slurred and masculine voice, Bargains are struck for good and evil. 
Bargains have always been struck for good and evil. The priests and the bishops have struck bargains before, and not been disappointed. We didn't only fight at Selnac, you know. We were there with Charlemagne. We were there with Jeanne d'Arc. No wonder the English burned her. The stories told of monstrous devils whirling around her head in battle, and they were true, mon ami. It's only now that the Church has seen fit to rewrite its history and deny the existence of all the unholy allies it used for its so-called holy wars. Madeline was shivering in fright. I put my arm around her and held her close, but the devil wasn't disturbed. Think of the Spanish Inquisition, it whispered. Think of the torture chambers of England and France. Each had its devil. In times gone by, devils walked the earth freely, and they still walk the earth. They made bargains with men for mutual advantage, because man is an evil creature, thank the stars, as well as a good one. Over in the corner of the room near the door, I saw a faint bluish light like the phosphorescence in the ocean at night. Then, to my horror, something began to appear out of the darkness. I stared and stared, and half distinguishable in the shadows, its mouth stretched back in a wolfish grin, was a beast that could have been a devil, could have been a whorish woman, could have been some hideous, slimy, subaqueous squid. There was a sour smell in the room, and the blue light crawled and flickered like the foul illumination from decaying fish. I saw everything in that moment that disgusted and horrified me. I saw what looked like a woman's hands seductively drawn back up a curving, shining thigh, only to realise that the thigh wasn't a thigh at all, but a desperately wriggling trunk of tentacles. I saw pouting lips that suddenly turned out to be festering cups. I saw rats crowding into the mouths of the sleeping woman. I saw living flesh cut away from living bones, first in ribbons of skin and muscle, then in a stomach-turning tangle of sodden flesh. Ooh. 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 That's pretty good, that. It's pretty good for a, for a, a genre book. Also, like all the um, reference to, like mouths that look like cuts. and well, it's, Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, and, and Dan is like, I can't take much more of this. But then, of course, we, we revert, revert back to, to Madeline puts on her blue jeans without panties. <laughs> what, why? Why? Yeah. And then yeah, yeah. she put on a sweater, but in the cold bedroom, I could see the outline of her nipples. Yeah. And it's like, we've just had that amazing <laughs> passing. Yeah, so it's, it's good stuff in it. It's effective. It's disturbing. Not sure what Dan's specific problem with horrorish women is, but it's effective. Yes. It's disturbing. But at least he gets to wiggle Madeline going commando and check out her nips. <laughs> and that's a really good point, actually. The hideous thing that he he describes, one of them is a horrorish woman. Yeah. Steady on, Dan. Yeah. Steady on. <laughs> so they know where they've got to go now. And after this um, encounter, because they do end up thinking it's in bed with them and have a bit of a, a, bit, a, bit yeah. of a rough and tumble, and then there's a flash of light and it's gone. It's just Elmec fucking with them. They realise that, you know, they might as well not bother staying for breakfast and get cracking, so they hit the road. And with unerring, sat-nav-like precision, because there's no time to spin this book out any further, Dan drives them unmolested to the very, that very address in London. I found it really, really funny. But Madeline had gone to sleep and he wakes up and goes, are we there? Are we there, there already? <laughs> yeah. It was like, yes, it took all of five minutes. That's right, yeah. They arrive, they knock on the door, they let in. He says, I need to see who's in charge or whatever. And we meet Lieutenant Colonel Thanet of Special Division. And once again, the Official Secrets Act is like yesterday's bog paper. And Thanet not only takes their arrival in his stride, but tells them all about the 12 demons in the cellar. <laughs> it's like, yeah, come on in. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, oh, yeah, you know Taylor. Oh, brilliant. He tells them that leaving Elmec in France was deliberate because only when all 13 are together can they actually summon their gaffer from Elmec. They left it at the time because they physically couldn't move the tank. Yeah. But then the fact that they hadn't collected it over the next 30 years, they had done as a deliberate, whilst trying to find ways of waking them, believing that they wouldn't be as strong by having them parted. Which, to be fair, is right. Yeah. He explains this to them, and yes, leaving Elmec in France in the end was a deliberate decision, because we don't want them all together, so they can cause ultimate havoc by bringing Adramelech back, uh, bugger, because Dan now admits that they've They've got him outside in the car boot. Once again, yes. Did he... I don't think he said again, did he, that we let... No. That he's been released? No. Anyway. No, no, he's keeping that well quiet, isn't he? Thanet's pretty chilled about it, as it turns out. Well, he takes him upstairs for a cup of tea. He does. And he explains that um, his job is all about figuring out how to use him again. And he's got a massive hard-on for using Adramelech himself. Mm. He's very free and easy with all this. And he actually doesn't give a rat's ass that Elmex outside, because... It makes you wonder, you know, does he want promotions? Why has he got such a hard-on for getting Adramelech involved? Because he he compares them to a nuclear weapon. I don't think he's got a hard-on. I think that's his job. His job is to find a a use for them, to find a way of using them safely. Yeah. And that's how it came across to me. Yeah. But interestingly, when they go down to to see to Elmick and the rest of them, because the soldiers have brought him in down in the basement. Yeah. He makes reference to the fact that Dan didn't drink his tea. He does. <laughs> Which I thought was really funny. That's right. What a bloody waste of tea. Outrageous. Now, we then move on to Chapter 5. Yeah. And if we think this book has been going faster and faster and faster in terms of pace, well, Chapter 5, we really hit 100 miles an hour. We certainly do. So he takes them down to the cellar. They have the 12 sacks. Elmec wants in, so they bring Elmec in as well. Madeline goes upstairs to retrieve her books at this point. Uh, the Identity of the Devils uh-huh. and the Invocation is it invocation yep. of the Angels? Yep. So she goes upstairs to do that, and whilst Elmec is speaking, makes it very clear we need the woman. Yeah. And it's like, why? Well, have you not guessed? Yep. A bit creepy at this point. And all of a sudden... We get a bit of a surprise. Madeline comes back down. Madeline comes back down. We find out that Madeline has more to her than meets the eye. Well, she's taken control when she's come back down. Mm. She's telling everybody what needs to be done, in what order, that, you know, he was worried about how, how can we identify which angels and things. And she says, I will open the sacks, as he says. Yeah. I will identify from the remains. I will tell you, and you can then read the incantation from the book. I don't think Thanet is very pleased with this, or the soldiers, because they're like, we need to stop anything happening. We shoot. Point and shoot. Yeah. So they instruct the girl to open each sack in turn. It says, the basement trembled and shook again. There was a low, irritating sound like thousands of blowflies swarming over a dead horse. It was so dark that we could hardly see it all. One of the soldiers said, Christ, it's like a bleeding grave down here. Quiet that man, snapped the sergeant. Elmec whispered in a hoarse, mocking voice, The girl must open each sack in turn. Only the girl will do. Only the girl has any religious faith. She must open each sack in turn and say over it the words of the conjuration. While Elmec was talking, I was straining my eyes in the dim light to read the pages which the Reverend Taylor had marked in the thin black book. The section was headed, The Seven Accurate Tests of an Evil Spirit's Identity, and it told you what you had to do to discover the true name 
of a demon or devil. But as I read more and more, my confidence sank. The first test was to ask the devil its name by the power of Samael, the archdemon, whom they called the Venom of God. The second test was to burn the devil's hair or scales and see whether the smoke sank downwards or rose upwards. The third test was to sprinkle various herbs on its skin, borage, fennel, parsley, and dozens of others, because different devils were marked or repelled by different plants. The fourth was to spray a silver spoonful of devil's blood across 26 cards with letters of the alphabet on them, and the blood would fall on every card except those with the letters of its own name. The fifth and sixth and the seventh were equally impossible, <laughs> <laughs> and all of them were obviously devised for a full-scale ritual exorcism. What we had here, in this cellar, in Huntingdon Place, was an occult emergency. <laughs> So, yeah. so these seven tests turn out to be absolutely fucking useless. But, she tells him, as I open each sack, I'll try and discover the name of the devil within. I'll try and pass that name on to you. They're only lesser devils. They're fierce and warlike and loathsome, but they're not wise. And then what she wants him to do is she, she gives him l'invocation des anges. And she says, look up each name in the book and beside it you'll see another name. The name of the devil's corresponding angel. Invoke that angel by repeating the words of the conjuration. I frowned at her. How do you know all this? <laughs> I thought that... Elma Quiz, come on, girl. Open up these sacks for me. Tear open these sacks and release my beloved brethren. Hurry, girl. There's little time left. So, yeah, Ma Madeline all of a sudden is some kind of weird genius. Yeah, well, when, when you've just read through the seven tests, you're like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Uh, and then you'd think, damn, uh, there's no way she could do that. Yeah. Yeah, so all, all of a sudden, she, she knows what to do. Sergeant Boone, Lieutenant Colonel Thanet, the soldiers, they're still there, they're still looking a little bit concerned. He says, I can't advise you to do what the devil says, Ms. Mademoiselle Passerelle. In fact, I'll have to order you to stay back. I thought Mad so. Madeline gave my hand a last gentle squeeze. I'm sorry, Lieutenant Colonel, but I cannot do what you ask. Elmec, in what sounded like eight vibrant voices speaking at once, called, Open the sacks, girl! Asmarod is impatient. So she starts to open the sacks. As she did so, a hideous shape emerged from the shadows at the far end of the basement, a shape like the black, glossy skull of a beetle. There was a shivering, rustling grasshopper sound, the chewing noises of insects. But it wasn't an insect, because I could make out tentacles as well, and some grotesque shape attached to its abdomen, like a deformed Siamese twin of itself. Lieutenant Colonel Thanet shouted, Fire! What happened next seemed to happen so slowly that I remember every detail of it, like some repulsive action replay that goes over and over inside your mind. I saw the sergeant and his three soldiers raise their machine guns. I saw Lieutenant Colonel Thanet taking one pace backwards. Then, out of one soldier's mouth, in a dreadful torrent, came gallons and gallons of bloody chopped-up slush, splattering all over the concrete floor. It looked as if he would puke in a hundredweight of raw hamburger meat, and Madeline turned her face away with a mule of anguish. Transfixed, I watched as the soldier's whole body seemed to collapse like an empty cushion cover, and he twisted over and lay flat on his face on the gory floor. Beside him, Sergeant Boone collapsed in the same way, his fatigues black with bile and blood, and then the other two soldiers. The Swedish smell was overwhelming, and I had two dry heaves before I could control my stomach. I was quite upset by this, because when it said Sergeant Boone, I could only picture Boone off the telly. <laughs> You're going back now. Yeah, so that's that's a terrible death for Boone. I'm now, sorry, Boone. Now you see, the description of the skin being like a cushion cover was great. Yeah. And I just, I did feel really sad for them, but I was like, 
What a way to go. Yeah. Your insides coming out like a hundred weight of hamburgers. It's the te- second time he's used slush as well, because mm. when McCook pukes up on the tank, he describes the puke as slush. Yeah. And it's a really great description. But not one you would hear. Yeah. Thanet gets away with it at this point, though. And um, he's still forbidding Madeline to step any further forward. But she's like, no, nope, I'm in charge here. I'm doing what I'm doing. And then she says, stay there, Dan, please. Just stay back. Just listen to the names when I tell you and invoke their angels. Elna kissed. What are you saying? What are you talking about? And she just carries on. And then she says, I summon thee, O being of darkness, O spirit of the pit. I command thee to make thy most evil appearance. I order thee to come forth and I nullify all seals upon thee, all ties that bind thee. Veni tear, O spirit. Then she grabbed the musty fabric of the sack and ripped it open. Interesting, she knows all the words now to say. Yep. Yep, she absolutely does. So he's reading the book. He finds the name. He's, unfortunately, it's in laborious French, so he's having some slight problems reading it, but he's managing to do it in the darkness. Well, yeah, she's telling him the names. He just has to look up the names and read what's next to it. Yeah, so we've got Umbakrel, also Umbakurahal, also Samed, the Devil of Dark. We've got Cholok, the Devil of Suffocation. We've got, who else we got? Skeleton by skeleton from the third sack to the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh. The skeletons of each devil were taken out. So she continues and he continues sweating away, trying to summon the opposite angels. It's all getting a bit crazy down there. Thanet's not happy with it all. So she does all 12. Obviously the 12 incantations have been done and she just turns to them, to Dan and Thanet and said, just wait. Yeah. She takes everybody by surprise by shaking them off and saying, we are pleased to serve you, my lord. We are true disciples of Adramelech and all his works, she cried out, her voice high and thin over the bellowing and groaning of the thirteen devils. We will follow Adramelech wherever his chancellorship should should lead us, and we will gladly bow before him in the courts of the nether kingdom. For Christ's sake, Madeline, I snapped, but she ignored me and lifted her arms high. Summon Adramelech when you will, she shrilled. Let us abase ourselves before his evil glory and his malevolent majesty. The lights go out. To cut a long story short, they sacrifice Colonel Thalet to Adramelech. Poor Colonel Thalet. Well, to be fair, he he tried to sell his argument and he was doing really well yeah. until he said, well, actually, we don't need you in a war just now. We just need you on, <laughs> the, right, on yeah. the sidelines. Yeah. And he was like, what the fuck do you think I am? Yeah. Am I either fighting or not? That's right. He, say, he says, oh, no, you know, we, we, we definitely want you on board. You know, we'll definitely give you loads of blood and stuff, but when we decide, yeah. it might be a few years, and they're like, no, fuck that. And then it's like, oh, what do you want? It was like, well, for my sacrifice, I think I'd kind of like you. Yeah, Thanet wasn't too happy with that. No. And as Adremelak is getting more and more angsty with him because he's not happy with what he's telling him, he does what he... <laughs> what is it? He says something like, he does what he's training kind of thing, and he do, goes to do a runner. <laughs> and that was the death of it. Yeah, tries to escape up the stairs, but it didn't work out. One of the devils burns him alive. Yeah. We do get some quite cool stuff over the following pages with uh, this quite crazy cellar scene. Hadramelech arrives, and then we get our major... We've had one swerve with Madeline, where Madeline all of a sudden knows what's going on. We've had the second swerve with Madeline, where Madeline's like, yeah, cool, summon Adramelech, it'll be great. Mm. We're well into it. So Adramelech finally arrives, and then at this point, 
Danny's a passenger in all this. And Dad's yes. going like, so now what the fuck do we do? We've summoned Adramelech. Adramelech is like, I kind of know you. Yeah. Who are you, girl? You seem really familiar to me. Yeah. Turns out that... <laughs> who is she? She is Charlotte Latour. Yeah. And you may also know me by another name. I was like, ooh, yeah, who's yeah. that? But uh, Charlotte Latour was the girl who was sacrificed to him. Yeah. In, and they said that she had betrayed the French resistance, but she said she hadn't, that just others who were jealous of her had set out this rumour that she was a collaborator of the Nazis. Yeah, because we, we, we know historically that the French resistance, there were various different branches and they all fought, often fought each other as much as they fought the Germans. There's a lot of paranoia. A lot of paranoia. Lot, so yeah. it turns out Madeline is effectively the reincarnation of the apparent French co- female French collaborator who was sacrificed to the devils. Yes. So it wasn't just a random reference to a woman. But the idea that Madeline turns out to be, in Chapter 5, the reincarnation of a character mentioned in one sentence in Chapter 4. Which they also, she says, and also you will know me by another name. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, so is she a combination of that girl and Hod? A, a voice rang through the basement, a high, clear, beautiful voice. She said, you recognise me now, Edramelic. You recognise uh, yeah. me now for what I am. Adramelic ferociously tossed his great donkey-like head and bared his teeth. His devils scrambled all around him, but he held them aside with a brutal sweep of his arm. Hod! He shrieked. The angel Hod! <laughs> so she is not just Charlotte. She is the angel Hod. And to cut a very long story short, well, actually, to cut a fairly short story short... <laughs> well, before you do cut a short story short... Yeah. So she only found out about her reincarnation when Elmick was released or when they were going to release Elmick. Yeah. So she didn't know when she first met Dan. After Hod reveals himself, he calls down his angels, who have each one have been summoned by Dan, who then take a massive angel-devil rumble. There really is, but it's not a two-way fight. The angels just totally... Take them all to bits. Yeah. So the angels turn up like the, the triumphant faces and clear the ring, don't they? Yeah. All, all, the, all the devils get thrown over the top rope like a bunch of losers. Yeah. And then it's just Adramelech and Hard left. Yeah, and that happened very, very quickly. Yeah. You know when you're like, oh, there's like a sentence. Oh, yeah, he did his, that angel did that devil in. Yeah. Or, and it was Basically, like, they're coming the ring and clear house. Basically. Don't they? Yeah. Leave Hard to face off with Adramelech. And Dan, very quiet in the background, probably still going, what the fuck? Yeah, but but, but Dan's like, um, I've got a tin of ashes. This might come in handy. Well, this is it, because Adramella says, you can't get rid of me. You need somebody who believes in God. That's right. Nobody believes in him. Yeah. And they need proof that Jesus lived. And they need proof. To get rid of him. Wow. What did we do about Eloise and her little gifts? I know. Oh, Eloise is the is the the greatest of all time, isn't mm. she? She's the prime player in all of this. Sadramelic laughed. Not not until this mortal produces his proof that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, that Jebus of Nazareth actually lived. If he can, there was a long tense silence. I turned towards the angel Hod, but its black brilliance was so intense that I couldn't see whether it was encouraging me or warning me. That's quite cool because they're angels, but they're not traditional angels, are they? The angels are as terrifying as the devils mm. in the description. Without proof of Jesus, you are doomed, grinned Adramelech. 
I shall devour you, mortal, and Hod will be powerless to prevent me. The choice of the human race was self-destruction. Not even the greatest of angels can prevent it. I coughed and <laughs> reached into my pocket and took out the pastel tin that Eloise had given me. I carefully prized off the lid and held it up towards Adramelech. What is that? asked the demon, turning its grotesque head away. I held the tin higher. It is irrefutable proof of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the ashes of his seamless robe which was taken from him on Calvary. Adramelech twisted and shuddered easily. It's a fake. All relics are fake. I felt frozen with fear, but I kept the tin held aloft and I repeated, as steadily as I could, It is the ashes of Christ's robe. It is not a fake. Christ lived, and these are the remnants of his probe to prove it. Probe? His robe. And not his probe. These are not the remnants of Jesus' probe. Good God. You lie, shrieked Adramelech. Take that thing away. It's the truth, I yelled back. Christ must have lived because nobody in the cold goddamn universe could have tolerated a world where you and your devils ruled alone. Christ's life was logical as well as divine, and that's all there is to it. You lie, fumed the demon. You lie. Do I? I shouted back. Then take this. I raised my arm and held the tin of ashes over the serpentine body of the Grand Chancellor of Hell in a powdery spray. And uh, it does the job. Anyway, some nice descriptions of his skin sloughing off. <laughs> I just thought, wow, it's a really good job, Dan, that you kept those ashes in your pocket yeah. all the way through. Yeah. And then uh, the angel Hod's just like, well, Madeline's gone now, just as Charlotte or Dad did before her. She's not dead, but we'll live in another form. Perhaps one day you'll meet her again. Yeah. I coughed. The air in the basement was dusty and stifling. I said, what does that mean? She's going to be reborn? In a way. Yeah. <laughs> so he's now gradually realising that he's never going to get nooky with Madeline. No. He's never going to be able to touch her thighs. Oh, he never did, did he? No. No. There's not going to be no talk of moist triangles or, ta- or untidy forests. To be fair, Graham Masterton does not talk. He talks about sex and... Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing like that. A woman's sex and yeah, I mean, sticking knives in her sex. Yeah, to be fair, Elmec only talked about women's lady parts in the same way that James Herbert's protagonists do. <laughs> in fact, not as bad, probably. <laughs> yeah. There is very little mention of that. Yeah. Hod disappears. He asks Hod a question. What do I do now? Is there anything else you want me to do? There was no answer. I turned around and the black glow had disappeared. I was alone again in the world of mortals. Very wearily, very slowly, I climbed the cellar steps and opened the door that led out into the hallway. There was nobody around. Up here the building looked as ordinary and normal as when we had first pushed the doorbell. The front door was open too, and I could see my rented Citroen parked outside, with a parking ticket tucked under the windshield wiper. (laughs) Oh, God. I went down the steps into the wintry street. It was almost dark now, and it was beginning to snow. I lifted up my wiper and took out the ticket, and as I stood there on that wet, cold London pavement, I was glad of the icy drizzle, because nobody could see that my eyes were filled with tears. The end of the Devils of D-Day. It was all your fault, Dan McCook. You should cry. Well, this is it. He opened it, and he's the only one who lived through it. Yeah. Outrageous. What a knob. He deserved that parking ticket. (laughs) And a lot more. And a lot more besides. Yeah. So, when you think about it, that whole story takes place probably over the course of about 36 hours. How many people does he get killed? Anton, Antoinette, Reverend Taylor, Reverend Taylor, Lieutenant Colonel Thanet, Sergeant Boone, and his two other men, two soldiers. That's seven. That's seven people he got killed and walked away without a scratch. And 
Madeline technically no longer exists. Well, she obviously had her part to play in it, I, so I can't blame him. Yeah. But seven. Yeah. Yeah. Not good, Dan. Not good, Dan McCook. But on the whole, for a rollicking fast read, I think The Devil's Adida is pretty good. I do. It's flawed, definitely. The protagonist is doofus. <laughs> and the start is great. And despite the fact it goes at a bazillion miles an hour, chapters one and five, I think, are great. There's good stuff in chapters two, three, and four in between. There's some really good descriptions yeah. that he brings out as a couple that you've read. Yeah. I hate to say this because I like short, punchy books. In order to do this justice, it maybe needed another 40 pages. Yeah, it totally, like you said, 100 miles an hour, the last couple of chapters it's like whoa how much stuff can you fit into the last 80 pages or so yeah it really does rattle it all off and it would have been nice if they'd had some kind of challenge to actually get to where the other 12 demons were the fact that they went to see father taylor the runger guy in the usa told him where it was then they hopped in a car and with the exception of an overnight scare just drove there rung the doorbell and got let in it was all just, we needed a little bit more of a challenge. We did. And I think if, if you were to do this, say, for example, as a gaming scenario, that you can you can kind of work those kind of things into it, can't you? I do like the idea, of, I'd love the idea of running the, uh, a scenario based on this for a game and, I don't know, have it as a bunch of vicars who are normally used to drinking tea but have some, have some theoretical only knowledge of devilry and demonology that they've never put into practice before. Yeah, and like the seven identities of a of a devil or a demon. Yeah. It was like, tease that out or maybe try it on one rather yeah. than just go, oh my God, look how hard this is, can't do it and throw the book away. Yeah. And it just happened that Madeline saved it all. Yeah. You have yeah. to sprinkle some Twinings chamomile tea over the devil's <laughs> corpse but it must be it must be twinings. No, no other will do. And, and also, it must have been bought at eight a.m. on a Friday <laughs> in Keithley, yeah. because otherwise, yeah. nothing will do. Yeah. yeah, it was too yeah. too severe. Still, good fun. And um, mm. funny enough, since doing part one, a couple of things uh, I realised in part one we talked about where it was based in Pondui in yeah. Brit- uh, in Normandy. We've been there. We've been there. Mm-hmm. When we went on one of our first holidays to France and stayed with your family in that converted barn in Mortan, yeah, which, for listeners, was a German field hospital in World War Two in the Battle of the Falaise Pocket. So we actually stayed in a place where Panzer soldiers and Panzer grenadiers were all kind of held up um, during the Battle of the Falaise Pocket. And we went to the museum in Falaise, that awesome museum, where I got super excited because they had a Panzer IV. Yeah. And it was really small. It was shockingly small, that Panzer IV. I was really amazed by it. Mm. And that was the first time that we saw a German tank, and it was in that absolutely brilliant museum mm. in Falaise. Well, the drive from Martin to Falaise, you drive through Pondui. No way. So we have been in that neck of the woods. Yeah. And do you remember we had the top floor to ourselves because my nieces were, were really young and yeah. they wouldn't go up there? That's right, yeah. Which is a good job because I got so wankered on that first night um, that I slept for twenty four hours. You didn't get out of bed the next day. Following day, I, I, I didn't. I barely Ooh. stirred. I I lost a day of our holiday. Yeah, well, that's good because you've got to have quality time with your family and your nieces. While I rolled around groaning and snoring. 
God, we got drunk on that first night. And I thought Martin was also that place where we went and had a drink outside that cafe, and there was a sign on the wall that says Freak Maison. Yeah. So we asked for Freak Maison, and she looked at us really confused because normally you'd get freaks with something, and all we wanted was freaks. So she went down the street, bought some taters, came back, brought us out the biggest bowl of French fries <laughs> we've ever seen in our life. That were good days. Some salt and vinegar. <laughs> And we sat there, got absolutely trolled, and just ate this ginormous bowl of French fries in the French sunshine. It was amazing. <laughs> it was so good, that holiday. It was. Not saying that all our brilliant holidays revolve around excellent chips. No. But we are British. We do like good chips and decent booze. So, yeah, that was a cracking holiday. The second thing is, I referred to having memories of watching the Manitou film and a woman giving birth to a full-grown man on a hospital corridor floor. Now... Yes. Our journey commented on this. On so our journey feedback from Manitou. It won a woman giving birth to a full grown man. Because Jenny said, uh, thoroughly enjoyed part one. Going to revisit Grey Bass, particularly the Pariah. First one I've got my mitts on, and then on to Manitou. I did find the movie on streaming somewhere, but very poor quality, unfortunately. Tony Curtis played the protagonist. I remember that the Manitowoc grew like a tumor on her back. The reason he was so deformed was due to the X-rays. She had to try and figure out what was causing the tumor. Good stuff, but definitely of its time. So I think I was conflating my memories of Manitou in my head with the film Extra, which I probably saw around about the same time, right. which was a low-budget British sci-fi horror film where a woman gives birth to a full-grown man on a kitchen floor. So I think that just kind of got them a little bit mixed up in my head. I think I did read Manitou at the time. but I. So the other day I was thinking, oh, since we've talked about... Manitou the film. Maybe I'll save can track a copy down. I have tracked a copy of Manitou down. No and way. as a special podcast surprise, we're going to watch it now. I'm going to pause this recording. We're going to watch Manitou and then I'm going to start the recording again. We can talk about it for 10 minutes. How does that sound? Oh, joy. Oh, joy. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. Breakfast in the Ruins hits the movies in three, two, one. How long have you had this? About. It has been 400 years since its last reincarnation. Any pain? It kind of moves sometimes. The soul of black magic is waiting to be reborn. What's your diagnosis? For years, man has turned his back on the supernatural. This is hers! I'd almost describe it. Uh, Some will deny it. As a fetus. Others will fear it. On her neck? One woman will give birth to it. Uh, uh. The Manitou. Since the beginning of time, it has practiced the mysterious arts. Its day is near. Each hour it grows stronger. Soon it will come. The Manitou. Starring Tony Curtis on a supernatural journey into the world of avenging spirits. John! Michael Ansara. What does a white man want with Indian magic? A modern American Indian thrust into a savage struggle with unspeakable taboos. Susan Strasberg, living in a nightmare. Innocent people, tormented by terror, threatened by the unknown. 
trapped by an ancient horror, the Manitou. An evil that never dies. It just waits to be reborn. The Manitou. Okay, we have just watched The Manitou from 1978 or 79, starring Tony Curtis. And I've got to say, I don't know about you, Phil, but those two encyclopedias I read from about Graham Masterton were both quite derogatory about that film, but I thought it was pretty cool. I have to say, I really enjoyed the film. I would love to know what uh, Graham thought, the film version of one of his books. Well, apparently he enjoyed it. And rightly so. It was... Constant action. It wasn't dull. It wasn't boring. The the story just flowed, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, didn't stand say. still. Didn't stand still for long, did it? No. So what's the upshot? Uh, well, first up, we have to comment on the opening titles. The score is by Lalo Schifrin, and the opening title music is glorious. Music wasn't bad all the way through. Yeah, and it's set against beautiful gliding Panavision shots of San Francisco, so it's very um, evocative of. Things like Dirty Harry. I, I love Lalo Schifrin because I love the soundtrack to Dirty Harry and he also did the music to Kelly's Heroes, which is one of my favourite films of all time. So what's the upshot of the film? Uh, Susan Strasberg, Strasberg plays a woman who's got a tumour on her back. And when it starts off, it's like on the top of her back, just below the nape of her neck. It's about the size of a tennis ball. After three days. After so she got it on Tuesday and by Friday it was about the size of a tennis ball. Yeah, but very quickly the doctors who were treating her x-ray it and see something inside that looks like an approximately five-month-old fetus. Yeah, they find bone and tissue. Yeah, weird. <laughs> yeah. And then we cut to Tony Curtis, who plays Harry Erskine, which is a great character name, who is a fake mustachioed mystic doing tarot readings and basically fleecing old ladies. But is he fake? <laughs> you saw what he was like when he was reading... Susan's no, but but he says at one point he says I'm a a seller, not a buyer. He didn't oh, he didn't no. believe in any of it. But he wears funky wizard's robes in groovy San Francisco. Tony Curtis is absolutely acing this. He's a hip shaking charlatan. He's got a hot babe secretary on the desk who shakes her head at him as he's fleecing these old ladies. And the film actually, we had to watch a fairly low res version because it's really really hard to get hold of. But it was widescreen at least. And it was enough to give you a great impression of those beautiful Panavision shots of San Francisco. It's a good-looking film. I think I'd love to get this on Blu-ray. I'd love to get this on Blu-ray. Yeah. Like the head coming out the table. That was pretty good. Yeah. Oh, that was awesome. The seance scene was awesome. But Tony did not appear, sorry, Harry, did not appear phased by it, by his elderly customer yeah. floating along the ground. Yeah, well... So let's let's go in sequence. Okay. The lady with the tumour on her back actually is an old friend of his. She goes to see him. They have dinner. She stays at his house. She's muttering some strange recitation under her breath as she's sleeping. And the following day, one of his old ladies comes to see him. It's quite an amusing scene, that. There's quite a lot of comedy in it. Until the point where he, he does a reading for her, pulls out death cards in the tower um, several times, and then she floats off down the hallway reciting the same thing under a breath and then falls down the stairs to a death. 
Now, my main takeaway from that was Tony Curtis looks incredibly swish in white jeans and wizard robes. <laughs> he looked really, really cool. Running down the corridor to her. Yeah, he looked pretty hot. This is where it gets really cool, and this is this is where I, I think there should be a Harry Erskine cinematic universe. I want more films, because he goes to see his crystal ball-reading mystic friend Yeah, but be, before he does that, you love the fact of his swishy cape. Yeah. But the fact he goes down the stairs and actually cradles the woman, oh, I yeah. found really touching. Yeah, yeah, he cares for the old ladies that he fleeces. And to be fair, <laughs> they are all rich old ladies. They are very rich. And they all seem to love him and get a lot out of him. So whilst he's... Um, He's a shyster who describes himself as a seller, not a buyer. He actually seems to be quite a, a well-intentioned guy. Other than that, he's providing these old ladies, rich old ladies with a service. They all love him. But what I really like is he has this network of friends in San Francisco who do believe and have skills. So you've got um, Stella Stevens playing the mystic who can read crystal balls and run seances. Their friend comes along who is a psychic or a medium who also comes to the seance. But did you get the impression that his friend taught him? Because she said there was only one person worse than you and he became a an engineer or a plumber yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the seance scene was fantastic. Yes. Really, really cool effect with the like the black glistening Manitou head coming out of the centre of the table, almost like it's, it's rising up out of oil. That was really great. Yes, it was. I did notice in that scene, Tony's hair looked like it might have had some additional spray on her. Which <laughs> his, his hair almost, because he's, he's obviously, in that film, he's, he's definitely in, well into his 50s, but he's got luscious black close-cropped hair. But it definitely has the sense. I've definitely got the sense that there's maybe some spray on her well, thickening it up there. Good physique for a guy of... Of his age. Yeah, and, and he gets away. With, the entire third act is wearing a silk shirt. Yes, he is. Incredible. <laughs> so they know they need help. The doctors who keep trying to get the fetus off um, her back, the first time they try and do it, the Manitou makes one of the doctors cut his own arm with a, with a scalpel and everything goes badly wrong. It continues to grow. Their second attempt all goes a bit Star Wars because they're using... A laser, Lasers. and then the laser goes crackers and starts firing all over the place and blowing the laboratory up. So nothing's working. Harry decides, no, they go to see an old doctor played by Burgess Meredith who says you need to fight fire with fire. So this thing in her back is uh, um, the Manitou of a 16th century Native American medicine man. Medicine man, yeah. So they need to fight fire with fire with a modern medicine man and enter Michael Ansara as, what's his name? Uh, John Singing Rock. Singing Rock. Well remembered. Yeah. I I, had, uh, I did wonder when, when that's up, there's always a temptation to kind of read things as perhaps dated in terms of portrayals mm. of culture and stuff like that. But I thought all that came across really well. Michael Ansara himself, although he's not Native American, he's Lebanese in origin. I don't think they had to brown face him up. He had a cracking wig. Cracking wig. Best hair in the movie. <laughs> And he's cool, he's charismatic, yes. he's not played up as a caricature, he's urbane, he's erudite, he's got a sense of humour, super fucking handsome, Michael Ansara as well. And he adds to this roster of really interesting mystical characters kicking around California. So he's like the fourth. There's the beardy guys at the seance, who's the crystal ball reading person's partner. partner. But I don't think he's mystic in any way, he's just a just No, because he said from now after it, the seance and everything blew out. Yeah. He said, we're just going to sell from now on, no more seances. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I really love the idea that Harry has got this um, 
kind of circle of friends in San Francisco who all have these mystic knowledge and power and can and can solve supernatural crimes. Really great. Really like it. I think the third act perhaps weakens slightly. Everything up to and including the birth of the villain, whose name I've forgotten begins with them. The Manitou is his spirit, but once he's born, he's mm-hmm. himself. We found out he's been mutated by the X-rays that they took of the lump, and that's affected his development. But he's still thoroughly evil. And everything up to including the Manitou birth is pretty great. And the Manitou birth is really cool as well. Well, it led me to believe if he's born, she will die. Yeah. And that didn't happen. So I... Did I miss hear something? No, I don't think so. I think I think the third act just goes a bit... Does it go slightly off the rail? I think it does go off the rails, for good and for real. The rules of the game seem to just, you know, be made up as they go along. The logic, some of the early logic that's been established just gets abandoned in the third act. Nurses come a cropper. Yeah, poor nurse. <laughs> yeah, we have, we have a poor nurse who gets skinned and we have a doctor who explodes. <laughs> but but just when it was starting to sag for me, the good thing is the film moves at a, a fairly brisk pace. The performances are really good. Just when it was starting to sag for me, then all of a sudden it goes completely fucking wild. Yeah, you're talking Native American, Americans. Yeah. You're talking about medicine doctors. How do we end up in space? Yeah, the Manitou. The medicine. ancient medicine man, whose name I've forgotten. They, did, they do say his name on a I number of occasions because yeah. there's a running gag that Tony Curtis um, can't pronounce it properly, so he refers to him with a number of things, including Mixmaster. <laughs> so he says, where's the Mixmaster? He decides to summon a great old one. Mm. At this point, it's like, oh, a great old one, interesting. And Michael Ansara described, when, he, when Tony Curtis asked Michael Ansara, what's a great old one? He says, oh, I think like Satan or the devil, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But actually, it all goes super Lovecraftian at the end <laughs> because they go to the to the the room where the woman's still in bed, where the Manitou has been all this time, and it's basically space with the floating Manitou, the floating bed with a woman in it. It all goes super Lovecraftian because they're battling in the great old one, and they're trying to battle him with machine Manitous because we found out it's established earlier on that everything has a Manitou, yep. even machines. And the reason they don't call the police is because the ancient medicine man could turn the police's Manitou and their own weapons against them using their Manitous. Yeah. So it's like everything's got like a an alternate presence or a soul. Sorry. So they're trying to battle him and the great old one with machine Manitous, but Doctor gets exploded in Poor his room. Poor Doctor Hughes. Poor Blown Doctor Hughes. Um, but fortunately, these machine Manitous decide to channel themselves through the lady who's still in bed. Yeah. And the climax of the film is her kneeling on a bed having a topless space laser battle. Yeah, of course, her her hospital gown falls down. Yeah, so she's having a boobs out space laser battle with the jellyfish stroke, eyeball stroke, nebula-like great old one in space with fireballs and asteroids flying around all over the place. She blows up the villain and then she defeats the great old one with boobs and space lasers. you got really excited because it was all a bit it, Lovecraftian. It was fucking bonkers. <laughs> it was completely bonkers yeah. and utterly brilliant that last ten minutes. <laughs> the third act was losing me. We, you know, all the, all the it was interesting looking with like that level of the hospital all frozen. There's a scene where they're in the doctor's quarters where the the incredible 1970s computer is, and it's like there's an earthquake, and they've obviously got this set on a stage, and the stage is set so that everything rocks. 
and moves. It's a really big, impressive setup with all the actors flying around all over the place on it. Yeah. The, I think the one week special effect is where the Manitou summons uh, like a lizard creature, which is obviously yeah. a bloke on all fours in a suit. That looked a bit weak. But everything else, including crazy space laser boob battle at the end, is pretty fantastic for 1978, 79. Absolutely. I mean, it's come out after Star Wars, so it's not that great. But for this kind of a movie... It's and absolutely fantastic. Budget. The budget will be very different to Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. So by the end, they've defeated a great old one. They've defeated the Manitou. She survived. Harry's survived. John Singing Rock has survived. The only real losers in this are the poor nurse who gets oh, the nurse who gets skinned. The nurse who gets frozen to death and her head falls off. And the Doctor who gets, who gets exploded. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And John Singing Rock did it all for two packets of tobacco. I know. What a guy. Unbelievable. What a guy. I think the Manitou was pretty cool. I, th- I think it deserves a better rep than it gets in those two encyclopedias. I wonder how close it is to the actual book. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting. And there are two sequels to the Manitou. And I don't know if Harry Erskine is in them. But I feel myself perhaps gravitating towards a Harry Eskin rabbit hole <laughs> because it's it's such a shame that we didn't get more Tony Curtis Harry Eskin movies because I thought he was fantastic. I thought it was brilliant. But when I asked you about it, because we did agree that it was a really good movie, mm. you did say that Graham Masterton was was quite happy with it and he enjoyed it. That's that's only from a link on Wikipedia, which links to an old book about horror films of the 70s right. where Masterton said it was a fun movie and he enjoyed it. Right. You know, who knows? But I liked it. I did. I'll give it a thumbs up. I'll give it a 8 or 8.5 out of 10. And I'll give it a thumbs up too and I'll give it an 8 out of 10 for a 70s obscure yeah. horror flick. So that's two thumbs up from us. We'll finish The Devil's Dida. We've watched The Manitou. So on Graham Masterton, you've now read The Devil's of Dida. Would you read another Graham Masterton book? I think I would, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I, I did enjoy it from the time I picked it up. I know it took us a bit of time, but it was over that Christmas birthday yeah. period. Yeah. But... I think all told, we've already mentioned Devil's a D-Day and how perhaps, you know, it's, it's certainly not a perfect book by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a great setup. It's a great climax. Maybe needed a little bit more connective tissue in mm. there, a bit more challenge, and the protagonist needed to be less of a dick. Yeah, I didn't want... Well, we did want to him either of us, yeah. didn't we? But we've got that nicely balanced by Harry Erskine being such a dude. Harry Erskine and John Singing Rock can stay. Yes. Dan McCook, he can go. Yeah, Harry was a great protagonist. Mm. It may interest you to know that Graham Masterton also wrote tons of detective novels. Did he know? Mm, lots and lots of crime novels. And sex instruction manuals. Well, I'm not as keen on the bo- the last one, okay. but, you know, I do enjoy a really good detective novel. Mm. All right. Well, that's Graham Masterton. That's the end of The Devils of D-Day. Thanks again, Phil. Let's go and drink more booze. Yeah. I, think we, I think we should have some sherry and some Christmas cake and cheese. Do you know? I do know. It's been a very fun fun evening. Cool. I've enjoyed it. See you later. <laughs> Massive power to Phil once again for talking Devils, D-Day, Manitou's and Tony Curtis's hair. 
Keen listeners may have noticed we've been on something of a production roll in the last couple of months, and that looks set to continue for a while, with another four or five episodes in the pipeline over the next couple of months. Thanks to everyone for listening, for your engagement, and words of encouragement. Particular thanks though, and a very happy new year, to our patrons. First, those without tear. Anthony Picanti, Tim Carlos, Dave Dempster, and Sebastian Wheatbix. And next, our Chaos Engineers. Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Jim Kirkland, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Lee Gary, Mal Pertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Menion, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Scott Butler, Simon Perrins, and Tony Malazzo. And to our Jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Toby White, Tom Murphy, Mark Hebden, Graham Holden, and Jason Connolly. And eternal thanks to our patron demons, Andy Darby, Clarkie the Cruel, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Gwen Barlow, Imria, Janie Stim, Jay Risa, Joe Monty, Liam J, Miles Reed Lobato, Mortmain, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last, but never in the slightest bit least, Robert McMillan. Right, enough yakking. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruinsoutlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too, and there are a few extra odds and sods on there. So all the best for 23. Take care, stay safe, and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads.